Good morning. Um, I'm going to be doing our sermon scripture reading, and it comes from Ephesians 2, verse 19 through 22. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we are overjoyed, Lord, at the privilege of being in your presence, of hearing your word read, of hearing your truths, of your gospel sung by your people, this wonderful choir before me. As we lift up our voices and our hearts and praise to you, Father, what a joyous thing it is to be with your people, knowing that your spirit is here amongst us and with us. And Father, we pray that as we continue in worship today, now as we look towards your word, Father, that you would use your word as you said you would to build us up, to present us mature in Christ, or to reveal any hidden sin within our heart Lord, we know that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the very marrow and souls of men and women. Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. And Father, we pray that you would speak, for your servants are listening. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Glad you are here and just such a wonderful thing to be with you all this morning. And again, this is your first time with us. Welcome to Redemption Church. We're, we're in the process of planting Redemption Church, and we're excited about what God is doing. And again, it's encouraging to see already so many new faces coming in, uh, curious and intrigued about what God is doing here. And so we are kind of, this is our third Sunday worshiping together. So a lot of this is still kind of new to us, but, but thank you for being here. And we are looking forward to seeing what God is doing. We're kind of in the, the church planting process and we're looking towards in August actually publicly constituting and covenanting as a church and, and beginning our kind of public ministry to the community. But it's wonderful to see new faces already coming in, and we are so excited about what God is doing. So as we are kind of beginning this church, led by God to do so, um, we're, we're spending some time looking at key scriptures, understanding really what the church is all about. So last week, we talked just about how the church fits in with God's great plan of redemption, how the church past, present, and future fits in with God's plan of bringing himself glory as he redeems a people for his own possession through, the son, through his son, Jesus Christ. Today, we're looking at the foundation of the church. What is the church to be built upon? And as you can tell from the sermon title, that we must be built upon the cornerstone, who is Jesus Christ. And again, we'll be looking at this from Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. But, you know, thanks to shows like Fixer Upper on HGTV, everyone is obsessed with decorating their house nowadays, aren't they? 
renovating it, doing remodeling, and, and of course, creating that, that classic Joanna Gaines vintage farmhouse look, right? Everybody's doing that. You can walk into Hobby Lobby. You can walk into Target. They've got a Joanna Gaines section in Target now. Everybody's obsessed with, with decorating their, their homes in this particular style. And as a man who has a wife with an unusual gift for interior design... I've been forced to learn a lot of things I never thought I would have to learn as a husband. Uh, you can ask Caitlin, when we first got married, my, my handiness level was non-existent. Uh, my dad never picked up a hammer and never taught me how to pick up a hammer. And so, but thankfully, I had a good father-in-law who helped teach me and instruct me and build up my tool collection and just show me how to do things. So I'm, I'm adequate now uh, after several years of marriage, but, but we've done all sorts of projects around the house. And as we've done projects around the house, I've learned two things. One is that there's always another project to do. <laughs> You're never done. And second, that when it comes to decorations around the house, appearances can be deceiving, meaning that you can take a house and you can clean it up with some paint and some cool rustic vintage decorations but if the interior of the house is bad, you're ultimately wasting your time with the decorations, aren't you? That you might have a house that if you take a picture of it, it might be good enough to put on the front cover of Home and Gardens, right? But if the foundation of that house is bad, the house is pretty much just like a pig covered up in makeup, isn't it? And the same is true when it comes to the church. That the scriptures often employ this language when we speak about the church of, of constructing a temple. That's the language Paul is using here in Ephesians 2. That, that God is building a temple for his spirit. And as the scriptures speak of the construction of the church using this metaphor, it's interesting that Paul never talks about the style and decorations of the church, does he? That's not his focus. Rather, as he speaks about building Christ's church and what the Spirit is doing in this, the focus is always exclusively upon the foundation. The foundation. As any contractor can tell you, it is vitally important that you take time and patience to lay a solid foundation for any building you're going to build. Before you start putting up walls, you make sure that foundation is level and secure especially before you start picking out throw pillows and curtains, right? <laughs> the foundation comes before that. It's crucial. But, you know, we tend to get this backwards, don't we? Even as we think about the church, the construction of Christ church. You know, we, when we build our remodeled homes, you know, we get excited about, you know, changing up the floor plan or the number of bathrooms in the house or the size of the kitchen. But most people could care less about the foundation, like, nobody gets excited. All right, we're going to do the foundation of our house. Let's do it. You know, that's, that's not something anybody gets excited about. We, when we do remodeling in our own homes, we get excited about the non-essentials, don't we? The preferences, the ornamentation, right? We don't think about the foundation. In the same way, when, when we build Christ Church, we tend to do that same thing, don't we? We think about specific ministries. We think about what kind of style of music are we going to have? We think about the, the children's wings and the children's ministry, right? We think about even the website and the branding and all these different things that go into planting a church. And like home renovations, if we're not careful, we can set our attention and emotions on the decorations and ultimately neglect the foundations. That is a recipe for disaster. 
And I have felt this own pool in my own life these last few weeks with the intensity and the velocity of this relatively shortened church planting process. I have found my own heart beginning to obsess over the details of the church planting process. Little details that, you know, in the grand scheme of things just are transient, are momentary, are fleeting. I mean, these are aspects of the ministry that we're just going to have to change in five years anyway. You know, these things aren't lasting, but yet they dominate my attention and focus. And so I must be careful. We must be careful as we look to plant Redemption Church because it will be easy for us to get obsessed over those transient pieces of church life that are temporary and preferential and to neglect the foundation of this church we hope Christ will build. That foundation which is eternal and non-negotiable, right? So we must carefully lay the foundation of this church before we start obsessing over the light fixtures of the church, metaphorically speaking, right? So we must not make this error. Before we go to work on the specifics of the vision of Redemption Church, let's lay a solid foundation. We want to make this clear and explicit. And Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 will help us do do that this morning. So in sum, here's what the sermon's about this morning, is that the foundation of the church is the word of God built upon Christ the cornerstone. The foundation of the church is the word of God built upon Christ the cornerstone. So let's let's look at Paul's counsel to us, his holy word here before us, and let's look at the blueprints of how do you build a church? How do we construct this temple that God is building in Christ? And we will do that by looking at three areas. First, we will see that Christ laid the cornerstone. Second, we will see the apostles and prophets poured the scriptural foundation. And then third, the members of the church are joined together in unity. So let's talk about the first point this morning, that Christ laid the cornerstone. When it comes to establishing the foundation of the church, we must ensure that it is built upon the cornerstone, Christ Jesus. Look at Ephesians 2, 19 through 20 again in your scriptures. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now you might be thinking, what is a cornerstone? Now, the only reference to this particular word here in Ephesians 2 is is referenced in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, and it's found in Isaiah 28, verse 16. Let me read it for you. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. So this cornerstone does not refer to some sort of capstone on the top of a building. Some have tried to argue that, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. But rather, this is referring to the essential key element in establishing the foundation of the building. The cornerstone is the first thing you lay, not the last thing you put on top, right? This is what the cornerstone is. It's the founding stone. Cornerstones in in biblical times were were load-bearing stones that determined the contours and and the perimeter of the building, the boundaries of the building. Everything was built 
around the cornerstone. The cornerstone set the trajectory. And in the same way, Christ is that founding stone. He ensures that the church will be square and stable and secure as the church is built upon himself, that cornerstone. Of course, Christ's own people rejected him as the cornerstone, didn't they? And we read about that in the Gospels. Jesus tells this, the parable of the wicked tenants in Mark chapter 12. And he talks about how these tenants end up killing the owner of the vineyard's son, referring to the religious leaders of Israel ultimately killing Christ. And as Jesus does that, he quotes from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, speaking of himself. Jesus was rejected by the world. The world didn't want to have anything to do with him. But yet the Lord has established Christ as the cornerstone of his church. Even though he would be arrested and crucified in the hands of, of murderous men, the father chose his son to be the cornerstone upon which he would build his church. God accomplished his great and glorious plan of redemption by laying the cornerstone of Christ in the bloody soil of Golgotha's hill. God laid the stone, and that stone is Christ. So the church must be centered on Christ. Right? If he's the cornerstone, we must be centered on him, and it's so easy, so easy to build a church on some other cornerstone than Christ. I mean, it's just so easy for us to do. And we often do it without realizing it. We don't realize we've made this kind of shift in the church really isn't about Jesus anymore. We've begun to to build our fellowship and our community on something other than Christ. It happens unperceptively without people realizing that it has happened. Satan blinds us to the, the drift in our hearts. And the church can begin to easily swap out Christ for some other special interest. What are some of those interests? Well, you could probably give me a few, but let me just name some. Now, some choose to to build the church, not on Christ, but on a common ethnic identity. They think that what binds them together is their own skin color, color, their own culture, and they wall themselves off from other people that are different than them. People who look and act differently than them, well, you're not welcome at our church. I've heard of churches who have said things to people of color before. And what a shame that is. I mean, even here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us how the gospel is, in fact, tearing down the dividing wall of hostility between racial divisions, right? That, that the gospel is demolishing the divisions we've erected between ourselves, between Jew and Gentile, black and white, Hispanic and Asian, right? Christ is tearing those walls down. We are now one new people in Christ Jesus, Racial reconciliation must begin with the people of God, and it must begin in the church. You know, but some might choose to build the foundation of, of the church upon a common political interest. Right? The church begins to shift their foundation away from Christ himself and, and begin to drift to political activism in some way. They begin to replace the, the worship of Christ with a worship of country. And idolatrous nationalism begins to define the church as the people latch on to a particular political party and consume themselves with political activity and concerns. 
And of course, the gospel has political implications. We don't want to deny that in any sense. But these churches tend to be like Esau in Genesis, turning in their birthright for a bowl of political and cultural expediency. Some might choose to build their church upon social interest. So the church ends up becoming kind of like a social club. They're not there for Christ anymore. They're just kind of there for one another. And the church ends up turning into a, a large clique of people that like each other and like hanging out with each other and, and are really just gathering for socialism, so socializing with one another. So they busy themselves with activities and events. The church calendar is packed full, so much so that, that they begin to make this kind of inward turn where they're not really about the community anymore, but they're just kind of about themselves and, and caring for themselves and, and, and just being together. And they're ignoring the great need of the community and the world. And, and over time, churches like this end up becoming shopping malls of events and programs to cater to everyone in the church to try to make everybody happy. Some choose to build their church upon, not Christ, but their traditions. The church becomes not about Christ anymore, but about preserving a specific cultural moment in time, most recently the 1950s, right? It's all about protecting what used to be, and so the church begins to idolize the past, always dreaming of what used to be and never thinking about what God is doing in the present or what God could do in the future. They become shackled by it, and they begin to confuse their traditions with the gospel itself. And over time, churches like this tend to grow cold to the gospel, and distant to the community that God has called them to reach. See, the list of false foundations in the church could go on and on. I'm sure you could probably come up with a few more, but it's the tendency of the church to do this over time, to begin to slowly drift away from our one and true foundation. Over the years, we can slowly but surely begin to forget our first love. And before long, the boiling zeal and passion of the church will begin to settle into a tepid and lukewarm routine. No good for anything, so much so that the Lord Jesus eventually spits churches like this out of his mouth. And this pattern recurs throughout every generation. And as a church begins to replace the foundation of Christ with something else, the church begins to plateau and ultimately die as it should, right? This is a problem. This is an issue. That this is why Jesus lets churches die. And it's why new churches need to constantly be started. But however, this problem is not just a problem for churches out there, right? It's a problem for you. It's a problem for me. We have the same tendency in our own hearts, that it's a problem because we have that same tendency to drift. That because you and I are sinners and because we have corrupted hearts, that it's so easy for us over the years to let sin corrupt our vision of who Christ is and begin to slowly drift away from our true foundation. Our sin is like a river. And the river pierces and goes and it flows and it begins to slowly erode the banks of the shore. And this proclivity towards idolatry that we all have, that you have, to hard-heartedness, to spiritual blindness, that we, it must cause us to carefully and regularly examine our own hearts, to be on guard against this shift, lest our sinfulness begins to erode away the church's one and true foundation. 
Usually when you build a house, you build the foundation and you tend to forget about it, right? <laughs> Nobody really thinks about your foundation in your home unless something's wrong with it, right? Usually we just kind of forget it's there. We ignore it. We make sure it's right and then we just kind of leave it behind. And of course, right now in this planting phase of the church, we're, we're trying to be very intentional of, of really clearly defining that foundation, but, but we can't ignore it after it's built. You see, if we have the mindset like that with our homes of just kind of forgetting about the foundation, then ultimately it's going to spell ruin and disaster for this church. Unlike your house, the church must examine its foundation regularly, annually weekly. Right? We must constantly be making sure that what's driving all that we do, that all that we're building ourselves upon is Christ. And we must weekly recalibrate the heart of our church and making sure that the, the grounds of our fellowship are being built upon Christ, the cornerstone, and make sure we're not drifting away. After all, it is on Christ, the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So Christ laid the cornerstone for us. Second, we see that the apostles and prophets poured the scriptural foundation. They poured the scriptural foundation. So if Christ is the cornerstone of the church, Paul tells us that the foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets. Look at verse 20, right? Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So who are these apostles and prophets? Well, ultimately these refer to the teachers of the church who bring the word of God to bear on people's lives. So the disciples of Jesus end up becoming the apostles in the New Testament and in the early church, along with Matthias, who was selected, if you remember, in Acts 1 to replace Judas, and ultimately the apostle Paul, who met the Lord on the road to Damascus. And so these apostles were men who were given unique authority from God to establish the doctrine of the church. However, the prophets here, referenced in Ephesians 2, it's not referring to the Old Testament prophets, but rather it's referring to the office of prophet in the New Testament. Those giving the, the gifting and the responsibility of teaching and heralding the scriptures in local congregations. So this is, uh, how do we know this? Well, because Paul references it in Ephesians 4.11. You don't have to turn over there, but, but it's the same reference. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So, so by prophets, he's referring to the teaching ministry of the church, those called to that work. So these leaders in the church are called to bring the word of God, the word of Christ, who is the cornerstone, to bear on people's lives. God's people's lives. In other words, the church is to be defined by the authority of the scriptures and to be built upon the teaching of the scriptures. Now, why is this so important? Because it indicates that the foundation of what truly brings us all together, even this room, right? But what brings us together is not our age, we're an incredibly diverse group demographically concerning our age, and praise be the Lord because of that, right? We, we're not all the same age, as it should be, right? That's not what we all have in common. And it's not our music style preferences. I'm sure if we took a poll, some of you guys would have very different style of music that you would prefer. It's not our ethnicity. You know, it's not our income levels. It's not our hobbies. It's not where we were born, whether we're true blue Wilsonians or whether we're outsiders, right? It doesn't matter. It's not our education levels. 
but rather the foundation of the church is based upon a set of shared beliefs and convictions, beliefs in Christ and the gospel and the authority of the word of God. That is what unites us together. That is what brings us together. And as I hope you're beginning to put together, the foundation of the church is very much tied and connected to the unity of the church. That if there is no identifiable foundation that we all hold in common, then unity cannot and will never exist in a local body. That if we can't identify that foundation, and if we put the wrong foundation in place... Unity will be impossible. So so listen carefully. If we base our fellowship, our community, this church, around anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we simply aren't a church. We're not a church. I don't know what we're doing, but we're we're not a church, that's for sure. A true church is a gospel church. A church that is founded upon Christ, the cornerstone, as revealed to us in the word of God and as taught by the teachers of the church. When we understand rightly the biblical foundations of the church, then we have the the helpfulness of being able to recognize that which is essential and that which are preferences. We begin to have the wisdom to, to differentiate that which is absolute from that which is negotiable. Right? When we mistakenly elevate our preferences, things that we like, right, to, to an idolatrous place of conviction, then the church becomes a divisive place. But when we understand that the scripture is the authority and that it is the foundation of our fellowship together, then we will have no problem, will we, letting the microscope of scripture examine everything we do as a people. And we will not fear it. In fact, we will welcome it with eagerness because we want the scripture to drive and direct and guide everything we do as Redemption Church. We want to not just give lip service to the authority of scripture, but put it into practice. And when we happen to be out of sync with the commands of God, then we will happily change. We will happily adjust our practices because it doesn't matter what we've always done. It matters what the scriptures say. And the church is to always be reformed and reforming in accordance with the word of God, right? That we constantly let scripture speak to us and we listen to it and and change the practices of our church to be more faithful with it. So Redemption Church will be identified and marked by its teaching ministry that we will be committed to the authority of God's word and the careful teaching of the Bible. And we do this not because I like to hear myself talk, right? It's it's not why I'm here, right? It's not just because we we just want to be intellectual and we want to be deep. No, we want to preach the Bible and teach the Bible because, one, the Bible commands us to do that. And secondly, because the scripture tells us that the teaching ministry is the foundation of the church, It's upon which the church is built. The pastors of the church ought to carefully lay the foundation of the church through the teaching of the word of Christ who is the cornerstone. Now, when most people go looking for a church, they usually have a list of things they they look for, right? Normally, at the top of that list is a dynamic children's ministry and engaging music. That's usually the two things you'll get. What are you looking for in a church? Well, something for the kids and music I like, right? That's usually the thing. 
And, and sadly, very, very few people give careful attention to the doctrine of the church and to the teaching ministry of the church. According to the Bible, the teaching ministry is the foundation of the church. That should be number one on your list. Everything else is secondary, right? As important as children's ministry is and relevant engaging music must be, the most important factor in finding a local church must be the faithfulness of the church's pastors in handling the word of God and using it faithfully to evangelize to the lost and build up the saints. At Redemption Church, we have high hopes of having a strong children's ministry. We're working towards that. We're building it, right? And we have great hopes of, of having an a excellent music ministry that is committed to ushering us in song each week as we worship the Lord together. However, our priority, our focus, our attention will always be given to the teaching of the scriptures. Why? Because this is what establishes the church. And this is what will preserve the foundation of the church. It's what keeps us from drifting away into error and to other pseudo-fouled nations. That a church that neglects the faithful preaching of scriptures is a church that will rather quickly replace the cornerstone of Christ with some other phony foundation. That a faithful expositional ministry reorients the church each week upon its one and true foundation, who is Christ. That the ministry of the word is, a, is the foundation upon which all other ministries in the church will be built. Third, the members are joined together in unity. The members are joined together in unity. This leads us to consider that the unity of the congregation. Paul tells us that upon this foundation of the scriptures, the church is built up, that it is joined together, and that it grows. Look at verse 20, right? Built upon the, forner, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Look at verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, God is taking individuals, people who used to be strangers and aliens, right? We had nothing to do with one another, right? Some of you guys don't even know each other yet. We're still getting to know one another, right? We're, we're still learning who we are, but God is taking this ragtag group of nobodies scattered around Wilson, and he's bringing us together upon the foundation of Christ, and he is joining us together. He's making us one. He's using us like bricks, stacking up on top of one another in order to build a church that will be a testimony to the glory of God and will dwell with the Holy Spirit within us. Unity is what God is doing, building us together. So many people tend to think that theology and doctrine should just be avoided with in the church completely. They think that, you know, just talking about theology is divisive. And they say that such truths, you know, they just tend to be so heady, and they just tend to lead to squabbles and divisions. And, and so over the last few decades, in response to this, and, and because of this idea, we've witnessed so many churches over the last century just kind of avoid doctrine completely and instead settle for silence on any issue of controversy. Now, th their intentions behind that was good. 
the intentions was, all right, we're going to be unified by not talking about anything that might divide us, right? So, but, but it's a false unity, isn't it? It's not a real unity. It's a phony unity. It's a hypocritical unity. A doctrinally shallow church is at risk of drifting into error and is ultimately divided beneath the surface of superficiality when you really start probing and investigating. It's a pretend peace, not a real peace. That beneath the surface, when you begin to probe and dig, you'll discover that people are very much divided over the doctrine of the church, the purpose of the church, and the direction of the church. And what happens over time is when we all pretend like we're all getting along, but we're really not, over time, factions begin to develop within the body. Different people are trying to pull the church different ways into, quote, their direction. And a church divided on what they, will, what they believe will be a church that is unable to be built up and grow. You see, listen, doctrine and theology aren't roadblocks to unity, but rather they are the fence which protects unity. You see, building the church upon the cornerstone of Christ and a teaching ministry committed to the scriptures, this is the only way to produce unity in a church. We must build it upon this foundation as every member comes and is being joined together upon it being built upon the testimony of scriptures. So if establishing the church's doctrine is so important, then why do most churches spend so little time on these matters? Well, well, you know, why are so many churches ultimately doctrinally shallow? Well, it didn't always, it wasn't always this way. Historically, I think you can trace the, the shallowness of the church's doctrine and the decline of creeds and confessions of faith. Most of those documents are documents most of us have never heard, for, heard of before, right? Baptists have always been a confessional people, meaning that we've written and we've crafted confessions of faith that clearly outline what we believe as a local church. Simply put, if that's a new phrase for you, confessions of faith are just short statements that kind of clearly summarize the doctrines of the church and what that church believes in. The creeds and the confessions they have no authority in and of themselves, but yet they're helpful tools, right? And, and summarizing what a church believes about the Bible and making it clear and explicit. And in recent decades, you know, Baptists in particular have kind of forgotten about our tradition. And we've ignored the historic creeds of the church, such as the Apostles' Creed or the, the, the Nicene Creed. And I think that's ultimately a shame, and it's one of the reasons why we're reciting those. Right now we're reciting the Apostles' Creed in our worship service at, as redemption. Historically, Baptists have always been a confessional people, but we've kind of forgotten about them. And so we need to recover confessions of faith as well as good and wonderful gifts to the church. And Baptists have written several confessions of faith over their history, including the First and Second London Confession, the Philadelphia Confession, the New Hampshire Confession, the Baptist faith and message, right? There are many of these wonderful confessions, and we're actually going to talk more about those tonight as we think through what will the confession of faith be for Redemption Church. So come back tonight as we dive into that topic a little bit more detail at 5 p.m. But, but how can the church be built up? How can it be united? Well, I believe the first step is a recovery of these confessions of faith and making them central to the nature of our fellowship together in a congregation, meaning that we must prioritize and we must make them important. Theology and doctrine are important for a lot of different reasons, but ambiguity tends to lead to conflict. And we want to be clear and concise about what Redemption Church will believe and hold to. 
You see, when a church is uncertain in what they believe, then it's a recipe for division. Ignorance of the truth confines us to immaturity. And we don't want to be immature. We want to be presented mature in Christ. So when a church adopts a a statement of faith, a confession of faith, Every church has one, even though they might not realize it or not. It might be in the dustbin somewhere, but every church has one, right? These statements of faith define what it is to be a member of that church, what members must believe in order to be a member at that local church, that they are affirming what that church believes as outlined in that confession of faith. And every person who considers membership in a local church should be able to wholeheartedly affirm the church's statement of faith. So remember, a church is united by what she most deeply believes. And so thus, confessions of faith are wonderful gifts to help establish the church upon its foundation, who is Christ the cornerstone, as taught by the scriptural witness, the apostles and the prophets. So if we will be unified, we must establish ourselves on the truth of God's word. And this is important not just for the church's leadership, not just for the elders, not just for the the, the lay leaders of the church, but for every member of the church, we ought to establish ourselves upon the word of God. That you, you and I, we all should be growing day by day in our knowledge of the scriptures and in our understanding of sound doctrine. You see, theology just isn't for seminarians, for pastors and academics, but theology is a gift for the church, for you. God doesn't entrust the riches of the gospel to seminary professors. He entrusts it to his church. And so the church should take doctrine and theology seriously, knowing that these sacred truths have been entrusted to you and me. We are the custodians of them, and we must know the gospel and teach the gospel faithfully. So so you and I, we must read our Bibles, right? Read our Bibles. Know what the word of God says. Biblical illiteracy is a shame and applied upon American evangelicalism. We have no excuse. We've got more Bibles than we know what to do with. You can pull it up on your phone in a second. We have more access to the scriptures than anyone, any generation prior to us. But yet, we are probably more ignorant of the scriptures than any generation before us. Read your Bibles. Read solid Christian books, right, that, that help you grow in theology and doctrine. Don't be afraid of them. Pick them up and read them, and we we hope to provide you some recommendations to help you kind of get to know what what doctrine and theology is. It's in our pursuit of truth and in our foundation of the gospel that unites us together, and every member of the body ought to be pursuing further knowledge of Christ as given to us in the scriptures. But this pursuit of the gospel, it's it's not just an intellectual pursuit, right? We're not just trying to, to puff ourselves up with more knowledge. We don't know it need any more people like that. There's enough of them out there, right? But, but as the church body begins to fill its mind with the truth, we must equally and passionately pursue obedience to that truth as well, putting it into practice that in light of the truths of the gospel, we care for one another and love one another. We bear with one another in our burdens. We weep with one another. We rejoice with one another. We correct one another. We encourage one another, right? This is what, how we put the body of uh, the, the, the doctrine and theology of the gospel in practice. We, we do that by exhibiting in the way we live our life together. Listen, the maturity of our faith isn't measured by our ability to take a Bible exam, but by our ability 
to exhibit humility and the character of Christ in the messiness of Christian community. That's where true biblical maturity manifests itself. And what a powerful thing, right? When the Spirit of God comes upon us, as upon every member, and every member is growing in the knowledge of truth and the scripture and of sound doctrine, and they're humbly and sacrificially dying to themselves every day and loving the people of God around them and loving the community around them that is lost in their sin. What a powerful combination when the head and heart collide into spiritual maturity. We pray, may Redemption Church be marked by this. People who take theology seriously, yes, of course, the scriptures seriously, but a people who with equal passion proclaim Christ and love our church and our world with the gospel. We must be built upon the foundation of Christ, and as we do, the whole structure of the church is going to be joined together. Unity will be the inevitable result as the Spirit of God is working in us to make this holy temple of the Lord, we pray, will be Redemption Church. So may we establish ourselves on this fixed and sure foundation of Christ, the cornerstone, that we must be a people who build ourselves upon this gospel, that we are wretched sinners who need a God of grace to have mercy on us, to redeem us, to wash us clean, and praise God that that he is that. That in Christ we have been forgiven of our sins, that we have been washed clean, and that we have been brought together as strangers and aliens and foreigners, and we have become one people as a testimony to the love of God and the glory of Christ, that we are united in him upon the foundation of Christ. So if you do not know Christ this morning, the invitation always stands. Come and know him. Come and behold his glory. This Jesus who saves sinners by his grace and mercy. So turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Look upon him in in faith as your Savior and Lord, knowing that he will redeem you and save you if you call out to him in faith. And not only will he save you as an individual, but then by God's amazing grace, he'll take you as an individual and join you together with a people called the church to love you and to support you and to encourage you and to disciple you and to care for you as Christ cares for you. The church is a beautiful gift. And so when we begin to understand what joins us together is ultimately our convictions, what we believe about Christ and the gospel, everything else will kind of fall into place. When we lose sight of that, chaos will break out. (laughs) But when we're united on the gospel, all those other things that we might have differences upon, we'll figure it out. (laughs) Not a big deal. We'll, We'll work it out. But we must get the foundation right. We must ensure that the foundations of the church are stable and secure. As Paul said, the church will be joined together into this beautiful temple of the Lord. We want Redemption Church to be a testimony of the glory of God and the redeeming grace of God in the city of Wilson. And let us desire to be that. Let us pray that God would make us this type of community. Let us seek unity as a congregation as we build our fellowship upon Christ, the cornerstone, and the authority of the scriptures. Christ has made us one. He has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. And however, we must get the foundation right if we will be unified 
and there is no other foundation for the church than Christ, the cornerstone. Let's pray together. Father, we are overjoyed at your work of grace and saving us and redeeming us and joining us together as your people. And Lord, as we look towards the planting of Redemption Church, we are so encouraged, not just by the number of people who are here, but by people who are committed to your word, committed to learning what your scriptures say, of of building a church, not upon hobbies and social interests, but upon the cornerstone of Christ. We praise you, Lord, for drawing us together the way you have. Lord, as we look over these last few months, who would have thunk that you would draw us here at this hour, at this moment? Father, we are excited and humbled and surprised at this wonderful work that you are doing in the formation of this new church. But Father, we pray that you would keep us humble, that you would keep us in your word, that you would help us keep the main thing the main thing, that we wouldn't distract ourselves with secondary and tertiary areas of concern, but that we would make sure that Redemption Church is founded upon Christ, the cornerstone, and the authority of your word. Father, that is our prayer, and that is our hope. And Lord, we pray that as we establish that firm foundation in Christ, and as we preserve that same foundation in Christ, Lord, that you would begin to build us up into a wonderful edifice of your glory as you join us together as your people. Father, we pray that you would do this in us and in this new work that you are beginning. And Father, I do pray for those in this room who don't know the Lord, that that you would burden their own hearts with their sin. And Lord, that they would confess their sins this morning and trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And Lord, that you would help them to commit and partner with this new work as they join together with the saints as a testimony to your glorious grace. Father, as we sing, as we praise your son, Jesus Christ, we thank you for his wonderful cross upon which the church is founded in the blood of Christ, paying the penalty for our sins. And Lord, as we sing about that wonderful cross and what was accomplished there in Christ, we pray that our hearts would be stirred with wonderful truths of the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.